0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Open up your Bibles, if you will, to the Old Testament, to the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. I'll give you a moment to get over there. We don't read an awful lot from 2 Chronicles. We'll be in chapter 28, 2 Chronicles chapter 28, as we open up the Word of the Lord. We read some things here, read a few verses here that will really set up all the things that we want to talk about for these next few minutes. And as you're turning to Second Chronicles chapter 28, and as you're getting settled in for this part of our worship, I will echo the welcome that was extended earlier. It is really, really, really great to see you here this morning. So glad to have all of our traveling folks back with us, back where, where you belong. Glad to have you here today. Glad to have a lot of guests with us. We really appreciate the fact that you've come our way and we hope and trust that you're finding everything that we're doing today to be found in keeping with the teaching of the New Testament. And We hope that we're helping you to serve the Lord just as you are encouraging us today. It's just a joy that we're able to be in this one place with one mind and one heart and one voice, worshiping the one true and living God of heaven. Let's read together in the text, please. And I really need to ask our young people today to be reading and following along and giving careful attention to the things that we're talking about, because I am talking to you today, young people. 2 Chronicles chapter 28, this is verse number 1. There the Bible tells us that Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned for 16 years in Jerusalem. What's it like? What's it like to be the king? What's it like to be the king at age 20? You know, that wasn't just a hypothetical question for this guy. No, for Ahaz, that was a reality. Because at the age of 20, he began reigning as the king in Jerusalem. He was the successor to his father Jotham. His father, the king, had brought Israel into a place of, of time, of peace and security and prosperity that really had not been seen since the days of King David. And so if you were to ask Ahaz, Hey Ahaz, how is it to be the king? Ahaz would say, it's good. It's really good to be the king. But notice that the text goes on. 2 Chronicles 28 verse 1. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals. He made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his children as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had drove out before the people of Israel." He sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Ahaz was a terribly wicked king. He did not do what his father did. He did not walk in the footsteps of his grandfather or even his great-great-great-grandfather David. In fact, drop on down in the text. Look in verse 22. In verse 22, the text goes on to say, "...in the time of his distress..." he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same king Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and he cut into pieces the vessels of the house of God. He shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. He made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah, he made high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking to anger the Lord, the God of his fathers. Ahaz was a wretched and awful king. Now, it's really easy for us to read those verses and to kind of shake our heads and fold our arms and discuss and say... What a wicked young man. What an awful young man he turned out to be. But what I really want to know, and what I hope that you want to know this morning is, is how did that come to be? Ahaz's father and his grandfather, they were faithful to the Lord God of heaven. And so it is not hard at all to imagine Ahaz, maybe at a, at a young age, maybe at age five, sitting at the feet of a priest in the temple, learning the law of God at an early age. It is not hard to picture Ahaz, maybe as a young boy, 10, 11, 12 years old, committing to memory large chunks of the Torah, those first five books of the Old Testament, as many Jewish boys commonly did. But somehow, in some way, between that time of childhood and the time that he finally became the king, Somewhere in there, all of that went away. Somehow, by the time that he was 20 years old, he had lost his faith. And while that was certainly true of Ahaz, I must unfortunately tell you this morning that Ahaz was not the last person that that has happened to. I have known, and maybe you have known as well, that there are too many young people who are fine and wonderful Christians at age 13 or 14 or 15, but who grow up and they quit serving the Lord by the time they reach 20. Despite parental involvement, despite teaching and instruction from the Word of God, despite congregational encouragement, they abandon Jesus Christ and they give up on their faith. And while it is true that some young people, they have just miserable and awful parents, who just utterly failed to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That does happen. I must tell you that most of the people that I have known who have given up on Jesus Christ, those were people who had parents who did everything that they could. I think the kind of parents that we have here at Lakeside, they had parents who did everything that they could to teach their kids, to train them, to instruct them, to set the example for them, to serve, to worship, to pray for them, to encourage them. And still, still those children reached an age where they decided, I don't want any part of this anymore, and they forsook the Lord. And I will tell you this morning that it is time for us to lay responsibility for that at exactly the doorstep where it belongs and that is at the feet of that child. That young man or that young woman who chose to serve sin and self and Satan. And so what I'm most interested in, young people, is I'm interested in finding out how does that happen? Because think about it. When you're 10 years old, Your mom and dad control your life. But when you are 20 years old, you control your life. And in that gap of time, as you mature, as you change, as you develop and as you grow, there are things that you do. There are decisions that you make during that time span that will either deepen your walk with the Lord or will end up utterly destroying your walk with the Lord. And so this morning, I want to share with you three of those things. I want to share with you three of the things that I have observed and I have noticed that young people do that I think just virtually guarantees that by the time they're 20, they won't be serving God. Are you ready for that? Number one, if you're going to be a spiritual failure by the age of 20, then you need to make certain... Make certain that you never, ever stand up for Jesus Christ. You know, if you have a a, a big group of people, and you're trying to figure out a way to to kind of bring these people together, to, to bond them, and in this group of people, you've just got a variety, a smorgasbord of different kinds of folks folks with all kinds of different backgrounds, they come from different prosperity levels, they have different educational backgrounds, they have all kinds of different uh, personalities. If you have a really diverse group of people, what could you do that could weld them into a tight, single unit? Well, that's easy. When you have a really diverse group of people, the way that you bring those people together, the way that you bond them, is you make them suffer. That's how that happens. You put 25 people, for example, on a cruise ship, and then you sink the boat out from underneath them, and they then have to spend three weeks together in a life raft? That'll bring those folks together in a hurry, won't it? Or you put those same people in a skyscraper, and that building is on fire, and they have to work together to try to escape that building, or they're going to die. Those folks will weld together in a hurry. Or you put 25 young men in a foxhole where they're being shot at and it's a war situation. You make them suffer? Suffering is going to bond those people together. In those kinds of situations, your skin color, your political party, how much money you have, which side of the tracks that you were born on and grew up on, that is of no consequence at all. Suffering has a way of bringing people together. It connects people like nothing else can do. And you know what? That is true even in our relationship with the Lord. Whenever we suffer for the Lord, whenever we suffer with the Lord, that bonds us to Jesus. Do you understand about that? Look in Galatians 6 with me, please. In Galatians chapter 6, As Paul is bringing this amazing epistle to a close, in Galatians 6, he says this in verse 17. In Galatians chapter 6 and in verse 17, Paul writes here, he says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. Paul wrote this Galatian letter to churches that were just infested and overrun with Judaizing teachers. Guys who were coming in and they were saying that Paul, that guy's not really an apostle. You don't need to pay attention to that guy. No reason to listen to the things that he's trying to tell you. And you know what? The easiest thing for Paul to do would have been for him to just kind of well, just kind of go along with that group. Just kind of join up with those guys. Stop teaching this distinct doctrine of Jesus Christ. Just sell out the gospel and then he wouldn't be looked at as public enemy number one anymore. And yet here at the end of this letter, Paul says, I am not going to sell out the gospel. Paul says, I have suffered for Jesus Christ. He says, you can see in my body the very marks of my suffering for Jesus Christ, and I'm not going to bend, I'm not going to break, I'm going to stand up for Him. And so I'll just ask you, how much suffering are you doing for the cause of Christ? If shared hardship, if that is what bonds us together, if that is what really bonds us and brings us closer to the Lord, I want to know, young person especially, what kind of hardship are you enduring for Jesus? You can be absolutely certain that Jesus has endured His share of suffering and hardship. Jesus, for example, suffered on the cross of Calvary endured the kind of pain and torture that our mind really can't even begin to imagine. And I'm even going to go out on a limb and say, I have a really strong feeling that maybe Jesus suffered even more before the cross, in Gethsemane, in those hours as He agonized and as He contemplated and as He anticipated the pain and suffering that He would have to endure for the sins of the whole world. Jesus has suffered question is, are you suffering any? Somebody maybe says, well, Joshua, what do you mean? We live in America. We've got all kinds of religious liberties and freedoms. We don't have to worry about all of that. Would you look in 2 Timothy with me, please? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, I appreciate the way Paul does not pull any punches in making this statement. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 12, Paul writes this. He says, indeed... All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you are truly standing up for Jesus Christ, if you are living a distinctly Christian life, then you will be ostracized. You will be ridiculed. You will be mistreated. Paul says you will face persecution. That is the way that it was in Old Testament times. That's the way it was during the time of the New Testament. That is the way that it always is for God's faithful children. In fact, that explains why Paul says what he says in the previous chapter. Look in chapter 2. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, look in verse 3. Paul says, you, Timothy, you then, verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Are you doing that, Christian? Are you enduring a hardship as a good soldier so that you can be bonded to Jesus Christ? Young people, are you standing up for the Lord? And are you suffering as a result of that? Are you suffering for the sake of righteousness? The truth of the matter is, if you want to lose your faith, if you want to be a spiritual failure, then just ignore what Paul says here. Don't do any of this. Don't share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No, don't be a brave soldier. You want to be a spiritual failure. If you want to lose your faith by the time that you're 20, just just be a coward. Be a closet Christian. When the kids come along and they say, "Hey, I'm going to have a big party Friday night. Going to be all kinds of fun going on there. Going to have some booze." going to have some pot being passed around, going to maybe even have all kinds of other stuff going It's going to be a great time. What you want to say when you get that invitation is, is you want to say, oh, if my mom and dad found out about that, they'd kill me. That's how you want to respond to that. You certainly don't want to say, no, I'm a Christian. I don't do that kind of stuff. I don't involve myself in those kinds of activities. I don't participate in those things. You don't want to say that kind of thing. Or you know when a bunch of the gang are going to go watch a watch an R rated movie, and it's going to be filled with all kinds of gratuitous profanity and violence and sexuality and nudity and ungodly material. What you want to say is is you want to say I, I, I I've got homework tonight. Yeah, yeah, I got homework I got to do tonight. Can't go because I got to do my homework. That's what you want to say. You don't ever want to stand up and say No, I don't watch those kinds of movies because that's filth. That's trash. That is garbage. And I don't want to fill my mind with something that promotes and glorifies sin. Don't say that. When somebody comes along and they start making fun of the Bible, they start running down God's Word. It's an old book. It's outdated. It's antiquated. It's filled with all kinds of errors. You can't trust it. When somebody comes along and they're bashing Jesus, when they're ripping the Lord's church, when they're taking the Lord's name in vain, I'll tell you what you do. Don't. Stand up. Don't confront those people. Don't refute what they're saying. You just sit there silent and you just let it quietly go by. You do everything that you can to just kind of, just kind of fit in. Just kind of blend in with the crowd. Camouflage yourself. You make certain that no one can see your Christianity. Don't undergo any of those trials by fire. Don't know that feeling of butterflies welling and swirling around in your stomach whenever you bring the sword of the Spirit into spiritual battle? No, don't do any of that. None of that kind of stuff. Instead, be a secret Christian. You say nothing. You do nothing. And in a very short period of time, maybe by the time that you're 20, you will be nothing you want to lose your faith, don't stand up for Jesus. Secondly, you want to lose your faith by the time that you're 20, then you need to be absolutely sure that you make decisions about your future without any regard or consideration for the Lord at all. You know, it is in many ways just positively terrifying how many important decisions that you have to make when you're young, specifically when you're a teenager. Because a lot of those choices that you are making in those teenage years, they end up setting the tempo and the pattern for the whole rest of your life. Think about it. As a teenager, you are making decisions about, about your education. Whether you're going to pursue a further education after high school, where you're going to go, that kind of stuff. And what that then does is that affects decisions that you make about your career, where you're going to live. You're making decisions about who to date. And that, of course, is going to affect later decisions about who you marry, about starting a family. And hopefully, if you haven't already by the time that you're a teenager, you're also making the most important decision of all, and that's the decision to obey the gospel and to become a a Christian. Those are critical and formative years, aren't they? Because decisions that you are making now about those kinds of things, they are going to contribute largely to who and what you become Down the road. Jesus talks about that. Did you know that? Look in Matthew 7, please. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells a little parable about planning. Right here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells this little story. In Matthew chapter 7, this is verse 24, Jesus says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I was reading that parable. Some of you were behind your pews and you were doing this right here with your hands and this kind of stuff and that kind of stuff. And that's okay. That's good. That helps us to think about that particular parable. But you realize Jesus didn't just tell this story so that we would have something to do with three-year-olds in Bible class to do with their hands while we're singing that song. No, Jesus told this story because it is a story about deciding some things beforehand. It is about the kind of important decisions that you and I must make ahead of time. Because when you have built your house on the sand, on an unsturdy foundation, you can't go check the Doppler radar and see, oh man, rain's coming. I think I need to put me a foundation under my house now. I think I need to get over on some rock. No. Doesn't work that way. You have to see, you have to see the value of a solid foundation before you build your house. You have to be willing to pay the price and maybe dig down deep into the ground and put it on the rock before the house is even built. You've got to get settled on rock first. And Jesus says that the wise person is the one who decides first to serve the Lord. And the person who then makes that decision, they then build everything else in their life on that decision, the decision to build on Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you, young person, what kind of choices are you making in your life in light of that first and most important choice, the choice to build your life on the Lord? For example, when it comes to your career, when it comes to the plans that you have for how you're going to earn a living and provide for yourself and for maybe for your future family, what kind of choices are you making about that? I remember a few years ago, I was in a gospel meeting. And I met a young Christian lady at the congregation there who, as I got to talking with her a little bit, she let me know that she was determined that when she got old enough, when she got out of school and was on her own, that she was going to pack up and she was going to go to Hollywood and she was going to be an actress. And I could not help but just ask her, how are you going to do that? How is that possible? As a Christian, how exactly do you intend to work in an industry that is absolutely saturated with immorality and ungodliness of every kind? How are you going to find steady work whenever you're constantly having to turn down parts that have sex and swearing and values that oppose the values of the kingdom of God? How exactly is that going to work? I'll tell you how that works. How that works is, is you spend all kinds of time and you spend all kinds of money in pursuing your dream. Folks talk all the time about, i chase my dream. i going to pursue my dream. i going to make my dreams come true. You invest everything that you have in pursuing that dream. And what will happen is, is you'll start making little compromises here. And you'll start making some medium-sized compromises over here. And before you know it, eventually you have fully immersed yourself in a culture and a lifestyle of wickedness and Jesus, Jesus is completely left behind. But guess what? We didn't leave Jesus behind right then. No. No, we left Jesus behind a long time ago when we were making those early, formidable decisions in our youth. And the truth of the matter is, young people, you don't have to be pursuing dreams of, Being an actor or a musician or professional athlete in order to leave the Lord out of your career plans. What about, for example, what about taking a job where you can't even assemble regularly with the church to worship God? You can't even be a part of a local church family because my job, my job just keeps me so tied up all the time. What about this? What about going to a college or a university or a school, going someplace without any consideration whatsoever as to whether or not there is a faithful church nearby. How about that? I know young people that's made those kinds of decisions. Here I am, I'm going to go and spend four years, six years, maybe eight years in this place where there is no church, where there are no Christians that I am aware of at all who can help me and encourage me in my walk with God. How's that going to work out? Do we somehow imagine that if we leave Jesus out of these decisions now, that somehow later on, well well, it's all just going to work out okay. We're just going to magically turn out to be these strong, faithful Christians in the end. What about who you date? What about that? What about the decisions you're making right now about the person that you date? Some young person's liable to respond, well, you know, Josh, I'm not going to marry everybody that I date. Well, duh. I get that. I should hope you would not marry everybody that you date. But I'll tell you this, though. You're going to marry somebody that you date. That's going to happen. And guess what? That may not turn out as happily ever after as you had pictured and as you had dreamed. Especially if that person that you date, there is no thought given whatsoever on your part to the spirituality, to the character of that boy or that girl. When all we look at young people is physical attractiveness or popularity, or wealth, or sense of humor, or some other kind of superficial criteria, what we are doing is we are setting ourselves up for the mighty, mighty fall that Jesus describes in verse 27. Tell me this, what are you building your house on? I'm afraid sometimes it's like young people, it's like they think they can just kind of drop Jesus during this stage of their life, during those teenage years. And don't have to worry about factoring Jesus into the choices that they make right now. I'm going to go to college where I want to go. I'm going to go and pursue the career path that I want to pursue. I'm going to date the kind of person that I want to date. And once I've got all that sorted out on my terms, well, well, then I'll start back up to being a real devoted Christian on Jesus' terms when I make it to the other side. But I'm here to tell you, young people, as Matthew 7 shows us, You can't slide a rock foundation under your house once you've already built your house. If you make choices right now with no concern for whether those decisions will take you away from Christ, then you will find that you have taken one giant step toward losing your faith by the time that you're 20. Finally then, would you find Proverbs chapter 14? In Proverbs chapter 14, probably the most surefire way that you can lose your faith by age 20 is just convince yourself that you are bulletproof. You know, why is it that young people make bad decisions from time to time? Somebody would maybe say, well, I'll tell you what, I think peer pressure has an awful lot to do with that and Okay, I guess, I I understand about that, but come on now. Why is it that young people let their peers talk them into, I don't know, for example, talk them into smoking cigarettes? Everybody knows what smoking cigarettes does to you. You can't even read the brand on the package for all of those surgeon general warnings. Everybody knows, you smoke cigarettes, you're going to get cancer, and you're going to die. So why then do kids still do that? I'll tell you why. It's because they think they're going to be the exception. They think that's not going to happen to them. They think that they are bulletproof. And the same thing goes for all kinds of other stuff. Drinking alcohol, using drugs. Everybody knows the dangers of that stuff. We've all seen the commercials. We've seen the advertisements. We've read all the statistics. We've heard all of the awful stories about the pain and the heartache and the death that results from those things, and yet... Many young people continue to be involved in that stuff. Why is that? Because young people have convinced themselves that they are bulletproof. I'm like Teflon, man. It just bounces right off of me. They are operating under the delusion that all of that bad stuff that adults get up and talk about and try to scare young people with, all that stuff, that stuff happens to somebody else. Not me. No, me, I'm untouchable. I'm immune to that. I am invincible. And you know what? That that sense of invincibility, that may be kind of an admirable quality in certain settings. For example, I think that's the reason that we allow 18-year-olds to enlist in the army. And we give them a rifle. And we send them out to war. Why? Because they think they're bulletproof. They've got the world in their hands, and so they just plunge straight forward right into battle. I think there is something, something noble about that. But most of the time, I'm going to tell you, this air of invincibility, it's not an admirable quality. Because what happens is, is the preacher gets up, and he starts saying things from the Word of God. And he rails against the perils of sin. And he cautions about all the youthful passions that young people often find themselves entangled in. And what ends up happening? What ends up happening is young people sit there in those pews and they hear all of that and it goes in one ear and out the other. And why? Because they think, it's not going to happen to me. It's going to happen to somebody. It's not going to happen to me. Evil companions, That yeah, that may affect other people, but that's not a problem for me. No, you know, all of my friends are good and great people. Or you know what, other people, they might get carried away in the back seat of a car and wind up pregnant or with an STD or some other kind of problem. But you know what, not me. It'll never happen to me. You know, other young people, yes, they may be tempted by drugs and alcohol and those sorts of things, but not me. No, I don't have to worry about that. I can handle the pressure, don't you know. I am bulletproof. You know what the Bible says about that, young people? The Bible says if you think that way, You are a fool. Proverbs 14, look in verse 16. Proverbs 14, verse 16. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil. But a fool is reckless and careless. One translation says the fool is arrogant and self-confident. Thinking that all those warnings in the Bible, those apply to everybody else, that is arrogant and it is foolish at best. In 1 Corinthians, please, in 1 Corinthians 10, see what this passage does for your bulletproof mentality. Young and old, 1 Corinthians 10, look in verse 12. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. I could read that verse and I could then cite for you example after example after example from the Bible of people that had to learn that truth the hard way. But maybe what I'd like to do this morning is maybe I'd like to offer and share with you a little more contemporary example of that. Do any of you know the story of Ricky Blackman? Uh, Ricky Blackman Grew up in southeast Texas. He was the son of a gospel preacher. He grew up in the church, so to speak. In fact, a very, very sound church. And at an early age, he was baptized into Christ. And it wasn't long before Ricky was—he was participating in the work and in the worship of that local church uh, where his father was the preacher. Ricky just was a fine young Christian man. However, when Ricky became a teenager. He got in with the wrong crowd. He started dabbling and messing around with marijuana, with alcohol, and he found himself entangled with a very wicked, wicked woman. Ultimately, Ricky ended up in the Texas Department of Corrections, the TDC as it's called. And that's really just a nice and politically correct way of saying he got thrown into the penitentiary. While he was there, Ricky wrote a letter that he actually asked to be shared with the local congregation where he grew up, and then to be shared around with other churches that have young people who maybe have a similar experience as his. And he wanted that letter read. I'd like to share with you just a portion of that letter this morning. Ricky said this. He said, young people, are you listening to me? Wild women, drugs, fast living. Look where it got me. Don't think that it can't happen to you. For if you find yourself on any of these roads, you will sooner or later run into a situation that may hurt not only you, but your loved ones as well. And when you say, oh, I know what I'm doing, believe me, I said the very same thing. In the back of your mind, you know who you are. And if you say to yourself, like I said to myself, I know what I'm doing, then the TDC has a number for you Mine is 000893. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, that's kind of a low number, well, that's because Ricky Don Blackman was inmate number 893 on Texas's death row. Ricky Blackman got high on drugs. And then one night with a wicked woman, he went out and robbed a man to get money for more drugs and he ended up killing that man. In Texas... Robbery and murder is a capital crime. And so on August the 4th, 1999, guards came to the prison cell of Ricky Blackman, and they walked him down the hall, and they strapped him to a gurney, and they injected him with a lethal dose of poison. He was executed. Now listen to me, young people. When the Bible warns you about evil companions, That's not talking to everybody else but you. It's talking to you. And when the Bible tells you you need to obey your parents because they love you and they want what is best for you, that doesn't mean that everybody else ought to do that and you're the one exception. No, that's talking to you. And when the Bible warns you about intoxication and drugs and alcohol and sexual immorality and all of those youthful pleasures, it's not warning everybody else and you get a free pass on that. No! It's talking to you. question is, are you paying attention? The Bible is telling you these things because Ricky Blackman is proof that you're not bulletproof. You and I And every person in this room, young and old, we are amenable to and we need to obey God's Word. I'm here to tell you that the moment that you begin thinking that that doesn't apply to you because you're Teflon, you're bulletproof, then that is also the moment when I believe you will have introduced spiritual failure upon your life and upon your soul. Now, if you were to go back to 2 Chronicles, and if you were to finish up reading the Ahaz story, what you'd find is that ultimately, Ahaz ends up losing the glory of his kingdom. But you know what's even worse than that? Ahaz, as best we can tell, ends up losing his soul. And I will tell you, young people, that there are worse things than being laughed at by your friends, or being told that you're uncool or that you're weird because you're different from everybody else. In fact, there are even worse things than being on death row. Because what if you are standing before the Lord in the day of judgment? And in that moment you realize that you lost your faith some time ago, and now, now you can't find it. I am pleading this morning for our young people, to think long and hard about these kinds of things. But the truth is, there's not any one of us in this room today who doesn't need to soberly consider our standing before the Lord and get right and get ready so that we can meet the Lord in a prepared condition. In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song of invitation. And that song is going to give you, it's going to give me, it's going to give all of us the opportunity to think long and hard about where we are in our standing with God. It's an opportunity for you, if you have not yet, to start serving the Lord. To put Jesus Christ on in baptism and to become one of God's children and begin that great journey of serving Christ throughout the days of your life. This may also be an opportunity, brother or sister, for you and I to start serving the Lord in a better way. If there's some repenting that needs to happen, if there's some praying and some encouragement of your brothers and sisters that we can assist in, then we're ready to do that as well. Whatever needs to happen, we're ready to do it so that we can all be ready and prepared to meet God in that great and final day. If you're subject to the invitation in any way, would you simply come forward, make those desires known? Do that right now while we stand while we sing.